Okay, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, John chapter 27. No, John chapter 17. And we're reading verses 1 through 26. Starting in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask these things for these only, but also also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, 
Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word as we come to this um, incredibly rich passage about um, many things, Lord, about your son, Jesus Christ, and his relationship to you, his relationship to us, the church, God, our relationship to uh, you and to him, and just incredibly rich and beautiful things that you have revealed to us uh, in this last section of Jesus' earthly teaching. Father, we ask that you would help us to um, to distill all of this down, to to uh, work through it and to, um, God, mine out all the treasure and the truth that you have for us. There is no way that we can do that in, in um, one message in the time we have together today. But God, help us to return to this passage over and over again, um, to this passage that we refer to as the high priestly prayer and to see uh, what Jesus has asked of you for us and for himself, uh, and for, uh, your church. God, we ask that, um, as, as we are uh, affected by your word today, as you use your word to sanctify us, God, that you would use your word to sanctify, um, the people of Blunt County, um, this Sunday, uh, and every Sunday, God, as your word is preached throughout the churches of Blunt County, we ask that your spirit would go before convicting and convincing um, the lost of of sin and of righteousness and judgment, that your uh, word would go ahead and that it would be um, teaching and and raising up believers in all truth. And that uh, through the spirit working through your word, God, that you would bring uh, revival to our community, that that the lost would turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness um, God, that the saved um, would live in faithfulness uh, before you, uh, God, and that we would uh, live as a people who are taking the message of the gospel um, across the street and across the world. We need your help to do that, Father. We need your spirit uh, working in us and convicting us and empowering us and emboldening us. So we pray those very things. Help us to live faithfully as the church. And help us to understand your word as we uh, look at it this evening. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are we are finishing up this little mini-series that we've, we've been doing um, over the course of Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, and then this week uh, that we are in. Um, as we've been talking about this, this section of scripture that's called the Upper Room Discourse. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples on the night of his arrest in the upper room, in the, in the room where the Last Supper was held, um, and and shortly thereafter. But there's this extended section of teaching um, that that we see where Jesus talks about a lot of different subjects um, and, and reveals a lot of different things. We come to this last section um, in chapter 17 that is specifically called the High Priestly Prayer. 
So the reason why it's called that is because Jesus is interceding on our behalf before the Father the way the high priest would. But but we could really call this the Lord's Prayer if, if there wasn't already a section of Scripture that was called that. This is Jesus praying to the Father, uh, not only for himself, but for us, right? And so, again, I think there's something special in the same way that we talk about when we have our prayer meetings uh, on the first Sunday of, of each month. We talk about the idea of when we go to the prayers of the Bible, when we can find a place in the Bible where someone is praying to God, um, particularly in this case, we find Jesus praying to the Father, then that adds a, a special level of relevance for our own prayers, all right? It means that we can take those prayers and say, I know this is the kind of thing that God answers because the scriptures include this prayer. Jesus is asking these things of the Father. They have been included in his word, and so they take on an added level of, of significance and importance. Jesus is asking the Father to do these things, and the Father is willing to do these things because Jesus is asking these things in accordance with his Father's will, all right? And so kind of like what we've done in the other two sermons where we talked about the idea of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us, the ministry of the Son of God, Jesus, to us, Tonight, we're talking about this idea of the ministry of the Father to us. Uh, the illustration from last week about a diamond with multiple facets. Man, we are only scratching the surface on how the Father ministers to his, his people in this passage. We're just going to zoom in on three things. We could probably find a dozen other things in this passage alone. We're just going to zoom in on three. But we're talking about what Jesus is asking the Father to do how he is asking the Father to act um, to him and to his people. Okay, makes sense? So let's start at the beginning. Um, verse 1. The first thing that Jesus asks, and the first thing that the Father is going to do in this passage, is to glorify the Son. Jesus asks God the Father to glorify the Son. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, and this is the ask, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So to glorify someone, right? We say that word just all the time, but maybe sometimes we don't think about it. That To glorify someone is to direct our praise towards them, to um, direct adoration to them, to direct thanksgiving to them, to direct worship to them. So notice this, Jesus is asking God the Father to glorify him. And that in turn, he will glorify the Father. Now, here's the deal, man. I think we need to pause there for a second and do this. Just for a second, pretend like you've never heard of Jesus before. You don't know anything about Jesus. You don't know who this Jesus guy is. You just came to this thing and said, there's this guy here, and he is speaking to God the Father and asking God the Father to glorify him. All right. Jesus is looking to the holy, righteous, almighty God who is above everything, full of wonder, full of majesty, full of awe in whom we live and move and have our being and all the things that the scripture tell us about who God is. And then he is saying to God, glorify me. That's nuts. Okay. That's nuts. If you didn't know anything about Jesus, you would think this guy was crazy, and at least on two different levels. On one, it seems like that is a 
kind of ego maniacal kind of comment to make for anybody else in the world. Okay. For a person to look at the God of all creation and say, Hey, glorify me. The level of presumption, arrogance, that's incalculable. Like we would, that's crazy. Okay. But on a second level, right? It's not just crazy. It's blasphemous for Jesus to say that. And a single passage from Isaiah sums up the concept. In Isaiah 42, God says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. That's it. God says, I am God. There is no one like me. There is no one who is worthy like I am. There is no one who is holy like I am. I don't give my glory to anybody else because I am the only one who is worthy of it. If we look at Jesus and we think, well, Jesus is some created being, even if he's like a super being, even if he's an angelic being or something like that. Hebrews explains the same thing in chapter one of Hebrews. He says, to which of the angels did he ever say, this is my son? God doesn't talk to the created world in terms of these things like about glory. None of them, none of them. But Jesus in this passage asks asks for it. He asks God to give him glory. And no one but God deserves that glory. So something's going on there, right? Either Jesus is a blasphemous maniac, or he is someone who can ask God, glorify me, and God will say, I'll do that. I will glorify you. And it doesn't just stop there, because as we continue to read in the passage, Jesus is making crazy claims about the nature of his own authority in this passage, which only exacerbates the insanity of all of it. Jesus claims things that belong to God and God alone in this passage. Verse 2, Jesus claims authority over all flesh. He says, I have authority over everyone who's ever existed. He goes on to say, not only does Jesus have authority over all flesh, he has authority over eternal life. In the second half of verse 2, he has authority to give eternal life to all whom God has given to him. Verse 3, in fact, says something even more crazy. Eternal life is based on not only the knowledge of God the Father, but of the knowledge of the Son. You have to know the Father to have eternal life, but you also have to know the Son to have eternal life. And apparently in verse five, it's always been that way since before the creation of the world. So when you put all that stuff together, man, the Trinity, the Trinitarian significance of this passage is huge. There is just so much concept of the Trinity, the oneness of God. And yet the fact that each person, the father, son, and the Holy spirit are God it's, it's, it's everywhere throughout this passage. This whole prayer that Jesus is giving is blasphemy and sacrilege. If Jesus is anything else but equal to God in essence, okay? Jesus has to be God or all of this is crazy. That is, Jesus is holy God. He is truly God. The Father is holy God and truly God. The Spirit is holy God and truly God. And that's why the Father answers this prayer. 
Again, otherwise Jesus would ask this prayer and, and he would be, he would be struck down for saying something like this probably. And yet the father answers this prayer and continues to answer this prayer even today. The father is pleased to glorify the son. The father is always saying to the world, look at my son in whom I am well pleased. Honor him. Worship the son. That's a crazy thing. But Jesus asked to be glorified by the father and the father does that. So the first thing we could talk about when we talk about what is God doing? How is he ministering even now? One of the ways that God is, the father is ministering is he is bringing glory to the son. Every single day. You never have to worry about, I don't know if you ever do this, like you start praying and you accidentally are going back and forth between praying to Jesus and praying to the Father. And so you, you're, you're sort of going back and forth. And sometimes you accidentally say something and you think, am I supposed to be talking to God the Father or is it okay to pray to Jesus? And the answer is yes. You can pray to both of them. Okay? Um, God wants the Son to be glorified. God the Father wants the Son to be glorified. And God the Son wants the Father to be glorified. In fact, that's exactly what he asked, right? The Father has sent the Son into the world. The Son has glorified the Father by obeying him, by accomplishing all the works that he set for him to do. And now the Son says, glorify me so that I can glorify you even more. And so we see the Son's equality with the Father. But then it's interesting, too, because that's only half of the doctrine of the Trinity, right? The Trinity says that there is... One God in three persons. And so each of those persons is distinct. And yet there's only one God. And yet we keep on reading. And one through five is, it seems to be focused on that, that Jesus equality with the father. And then as we go past it, it seems to be making a distinction between the two. So verse four, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the works that you gave me to do. The father has commanded the son to do these things. And the father and the son has submitted. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So, right, we, we go back through there, and we kind of reword it. The Son has been given work to accomplish by the Father. The Son is given a people by the Father. The Son has come from the Father. The Son brings the Father's message. The Son is sent by the Father. The son is submitting, agreeing with the father's commands and decrees. And so we see this equality, we see this distinction, and we proclaim that that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. That's, that's how we understand the Trinity, because we see these things going on at the same time in the scriptures. You know, someone has remarked, uh, as I was studying uh, for, for the sermon this week, Somebody remarked that here's something interesting. When you start talking about the Trinity, people always say something like this. Well, you know, the Trinity is not in the Bible, right? You never see the word Trinity in the Bible. It's not in there or whatever, right? But here's something interesting. John, the, the last section of teaching of John, which is one of the largest extended sections of Jesus' teaching in the whole scriptures, right? Sermon on the Mount and the Upper Room Discourse are pretty much the two longest extended sections of teaching. 
This is the last thing that Jesus is ever going to teach his disciples. And man, it is Trinity rich. So think about it like this. Think about if it makes perfect sense to me. The thing, here's Jesus. He's taught the disciples all kinds of things. And then he comes to the last night that he's able to teach them anything. And he thinks to himself or says to himself, the thing that is going to make the least sense to you in the short run, but at the same time is going to be the most radically necessary thing for you to understand going forward. I'm going to pour into that tonight. And everything I say is going to tie back into that Trinitarian language somehow. So go back and read it. Just go back and read 14, 15, 16, 17, and look at all the numerous places that there's all that complicated language of I'm in you and you're in me and we are together and together we are one, and but we are not, you know, it's all that kind of language over and over again, repetitive. How incredibly Trinitarian Jesus' last words are to his disciples. And this is what we see again. Jesus asked the Father to glorify him, and the Father does this. The Father is always pointing to the Son, saying, look at my Son. Look how awesome my Son is. And the Son is always pointing to the Father, saying, look how awesome my Father is. And the Spirit is always pointing to the Father and the Son, right? Because he's the shy member of the Trinity. He's pointing always to the Father and the Son, saying, look how awesome the Father and the Son are. So Jesus asked that God the Father would glorify Jesus, But he doesn't just ask God's blessing on himself. He actually goes on to ask for God's blessing on the disciples as well. And so he says, God, I want you to, the the ministry that you're going to have to the world, I want you to not only do something for me, glorify me, I want you to do something for them. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So Jesus is praying for his disciples specifically. He's praying for all of those who are his followers. And by extension, he's praying for us as well, which we'll we'll see that more explicitly in just a minute. But he also makes it explicit that who he is praying for is not the whole world. He's not asking these things for the whole world. He's asking these things for those people whom the Father has given him. And what does he pray? Verse 11, he says, Father, this is the next big ask, right? What is he asking of God? Verse 11b, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So what does it mean to be kept in God's name. What does it mean to be kept in his name? So there's probably a couple of different things. It's at least twofold. When we talk about being kept in God's name, what we're talking about is one, being marked by being identified with God's name, right? Identified with, with, with God the Father. That's part of it. But it's also this idea of being kept means to be protected in his name. We see that in the next verse, verse 12. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's obviously referencing Judas Iscariot and the fact that Judas, it was it was predestined that Judas was going to betray Christ and he's the one who was lost, but nobody else was lost. All the other disciples were protected and kept. 
And Jesus says he was protecting us before. He was keeping us connected in God's name. Aligning us with the identity of the Father. But now he's going away. He's he's ascending to heaven. And he asks, now, Father, in my absence, would you protect them? And in essence, not only to protect them, but that keeping them in their name to sanctify them, to set them apart to himself. And what's cool about this next little section is it's informative for us all the different aspects of what it means to be protected and to be sanctified. You know what it means to be sanctified, right? To be sanctified is to be set apart for holy use, okay? And so Jesus is saying, God, protect my people that you have given me and set them apart, sanctify them in your name. What does that look like? Verse 13, it's cool. There's three cool elements of it. And we could probably find more stuff in here, but I'm going to zoom in on three. Verse 13, he says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Okay. What is the first aspect of being protected and set apart to God? It is that we would have the joy of Christ fulfilled in ourselves. Jesus is asking that his joy would be in us. And here's the question I would ask to you. Do you realize how important, how critical joy is for your life, for every aspect of your life, for your work, for your marriage, for your family, for your church, for your community? Your life was meant to run on joy. I want you to think that. When you go out of here, I want you to go throughout your life. Your life was meant to run on joy. Deep down happiness, contentment, fulfillment that comes from a life connected to God and that is living according to his ordained perspective. Okay, That's what joy looks like. The joy that Christ would have us have. And he's asking that the Father would fulfill these things in his people. Okay, The truth is this. Oftentimes we do not live out of joy. Most of the time, in fact, if we're honest, we probably are not living out of joy. We are living out of obligation. We are living out of duty. We are living out of fear. We are living out of reward or something like that. And again, none of those are necessarily bad. They're not, those aren't evil things, but it's like driving your car on your donut. All right. And you've probably done this. Maybe you have. Maybe you're not as hard up as me sometimes, right? But sometimes you get a flat tire and you and you change the tire and you put that donut on there. And you go, you know, I really need to go get a new tire. I don't know if you've seen lately, tires are like $1 million, okay? Uh, and so you go, I'm not really in a position to just go get a new tire today. So I had to let it ride just a little while on this donut, okay? But here's the deal, and we know the case. And donuts aren't meant for that. Okay, the donut is meant to get you to the tire place to get a new tire. Basically, it's not meant to be the substitute tire for your car. Your car is not going to run right. That wheel is not going to work right. It's going to wear funny. It's not meant to. It doesn't have the same braking capability. There's all kinds of pieces, activities of your car that aren't meant to be done with that donut. The same thing is true of our lives and joy. Okay, we're trying to run our lives off of all kinds of different things but not joy. And not, again, the joy of Christ. 
your car wasn't meant to run on that donut and your life is not meant to run on obligation, duty, fear, reward. It's meant to run on joy. And so what does Jesus ask? He says, Father, would you give them my joy? Would you fulfill it in them? You need joy for the exact reasons that he says in the second half of that passage. What's the reason? Because the world's coming after you. The world is coming after you. At some point, bad things are going to happen. And the reason bad things are going to happen is because the world hates you. And in that moment, obligation isn't going to cut it. You're not going to stand strong out of obligation. Okay, and you can think of any story, and again, man, this is a little melodramatic because we're not there yet, but you can think of any story of martyrdom. Okay? You can think of, of, you know, the disciples who were standing before executioners who were saying, renounce Christ and we'll let you off the hook. And they say, I can't do that because Jesus is who he said he is and I know these things to be true. You guys, I, you know, I go back to, to, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, all the time. And you read the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's the day of his execution, and they just talk about the people who were there talk about the fact that there was this peace on it. Like he knew exactly what was coming. And he woke up that day and he knew that the execution was that day, but he ministers to the other people who were there. He ministers to the other people who he knows are going to be executed that day. Why? It's not out of obligation. It's not out of fear. It's not because he's expecting a reward. It's because he is acting out of a deep and abiding joy within him. Jesus asked, Father, keep them safe and sanctify them in my joy. So that's the first thing we need. As, as the Father is keeping us in his name, he needs to give us the joy of Christ. Two, he needs to protect us from the evil one. That's what Jesus is asking. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, right? To be safe and sanctified, we must be protected from the direct and sustained attack of the devil. Okay, We believe that there's a real spiritual world out there. There are really forces in this universe that wants your destruction. And again, we're not people who like every time somebody, you know, has a problem, you're like, oh, they got a demon or, you know, and we don't, we don't, every time your car breaks down or something, you're like, well, a demon must have gotten the car. That's, we're not doing that. Okay. We're not seeing a demon behind every bush. But the reality is, is there's a force in this universe that wants you destroyed. And the truth is, is that every single one of us would cave to it if enough time and pressure were put forward, okay? None of us are strong enough to withstand the attack of the devil forever. And so what does Jesus say? He says, Father, protect them from that. Keep the devil at bay in all of these things. Jesus is asking that we would be protected from that kind of attack. And God is faithful to that. We find it in different places in scripture. We could go different places, but... How about 1 Corinthians? No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. All right, that's it. That's God answering the prayer that Jesus is making uh, in, in the upper room discourse. 
we must be in the world, Jesus says. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. They got to be there and it's a wicked place. But I'm asking, Father, that you would protect them while they're there. All right. And then a third truth, a third thing that ties into this being kept in his name. Verse 17, Jesus asked that we would be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So the reality is, is being joyful and being protected from from the attacks of the devil isn't enough. At the end of the day, we have to be right. That's probably a weird way of saying it. We have to be aligned with the truth. We can be joyful and we can be safe, but if we are in falsehood, then all of this is going to be for nothing. So Jesus says that we would be sanctified in the truth, that we would be set apart in the truth, that to live a Christian life in accordance with the truth of the word of God would to mean, that means that you are set apart, right? You are different from everything else. And so we should expect to think about the world in ways that nobody else does. When the world looks on at the church and says, that's weird, that's crazy, that doesn't make any sense, we should expect that it wouldn't make any sense because we've been set apart from the world for the truth of God's word. When your non-believing friends or family or coworkers think that your values and priorities are not the same as theirs, that should be probably the most natural thing in the world. That's an interesting thing that I get conversations that I get into with my girls a whole lot of times. My girls will come to me and say, well, can we do this? And I'll say, no, you can't do that. Well, why not? Because we don't do that. Um, and I, and I explain it biblically, but I say, we live by a different standard. Yeah, but all our friends do it. Yeah, we live by a different standard than that. Yeah, yeah, but some of our friends who do it are Christians. I can't control their families, right? All I can tell you is what we do. And our standard for living is different from other people's standards of living, okay? And so we don't do whatever that thing is, okay? To be set apart, to be different according to the reality of God's truth. That's what we're asking for. But that's what Jesus is asking for. So Jesus asks that we would be kept and protected. And we believe that the Father is accomplishing this, even today, that he is doing that very thing. He is giving us the joy of Christ. He's protecting us from Satan. And he's setting us apart in truth and for the truth. Okay? So those are the first. So the, the two big things so far is he's, he's asked that God would glorify him. And he's asked that we would be kept in his name. But there's one more thing that we've already kind of passed over, but he more specifically asks it in verse 20. The last thing is he asks for our unity. He asks that we would be one. Verse 20, I do not ask these things, uh, I do not ask for these only, meaning just for the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Okay, who is that? That's us, right? That's everybody who's lived since the time of the disciples. Everyone who is a uh, a successor of their teaching, right? We are the ones who have believed through their word. And then what does he ask? Verse 21, I ask that they may all be one. 
So again, notice Jesus not only prays for unity among his disciples, but for everyone who would believe through their word. Everyone for the past 2,000 years of church history, Jesus is saying, I want them to be unified. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Jesus asked for that? I think it's got to be because he saw what was coming. Okay? Because he knew that that was the opposite of what the world and fallen humanity, even those within the church, tend towards. I think probably Jesus, in, at some level, he saw the betrayals and the abandonments of the centuries of persecution in, in the first, second, and third centuries of the church. He saw the theological divisions that established our orthodoxy. He sees the political rivalries between the Eastern church and the Western church. He sees the violence of the emerging Christian nations in the Middle, Middle Ages. He sees the great schism of the 11th century. He sees the divided papacy. He sees the Protestant Reformation. He sees the religious wars of the 17th century. And all the way down to, you know what he sees? He sees the Southern Baptist Convention next week, right? He sees the the, the fighting and the, the the factions and the disunity all the way down to our current day. I think Jesus knew that this whole thing was, this, this whole thing called the church is going to be a mess. And so he asks for unity. Jesus asked that believers would be unified, a unity found in the union of the Father and the Son. Verse 21b, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, right? So it's not just that we're unified together. Babylon was a unity, right? Uh, the Tower of Babel was a unity. The people got together at the Tower of Babel. That's not the kind of unity we're talking about. We're talking about a unity in and with the Father and the Son. Now, again, unity seems like a good thing in and of itself, but Jesus is actually asking for this unity for a very specific outcome. And you probably noticed it as we read the passage at the beginning of the message. Verse 21, the last bit of 21. Why do we need unity? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Okay, there is a, a specific and, and heavy chastisement for us in that passage. A special connection is made between the church's unity and our witness to the world. When we are disunified in the church, it sends a special, special message to the world. And that is, the world looks on and says, man, they can't even get along with themselves, right? They seem to always be angry at themselves. Sometimes they even seem to hate each other or people from other places or other churches or other denominations or something like that. Why should I think that they have any special insight into the God of the universe or truth or whatever. There's a connection between our unity and the witness to the world. 
And man, we are in the midst of this, as we've talked about really for the last three or four years. Um, we live in a fractious age. We live in an age that is fault lines are breaking in all kinds of places that you would have never thought they would have before. In fact, I believe that there is a spirit of that in some way. And again, I don't want to get too far into what that exactly means, but an ethos, right? That's a word that you hear that a zeitgeist. There is a, there's something about our world that wants to disintegrate right now, that is tearing at the seams and wants to go a hundred different ways. People are itching to separate. That's what they're doing. Like we want to have a reason to quit and go somewhere else. It's prevalent spiritually. It's prevalent, prevalent sociologically. Probably we could go and look at our marriages, in our friendships, in our communities, all kinds of places, right? We want to disconnect. We want to disconnect from denomination or from movement or theology or whatever else. And you may say, yeah, but there's a reason for that, Ash. We do want to disconnect and we do want to fracture. But that's because there's so much junk in those things. There's so much brokenness. There's so much corruption. There's so much baggage to carry just by being a part of those places. I just want to break. I just want to break away from it so that I don't have to carry all that junk with me. And you know what I say to that? I go, yeah, it's, it sometimes feels that way, right? I'm right there with you. It feels like that junk is not worth sticking together for. And the truth is the horrible situation that we find ourselves in the church today is that sometimes we feel like we can't in good conscience stay connected to certain groups. Sometimes it seems like separation is the only option that we have to be faithful. I think that's part of the judgment of our times, honestly. And I think there's a reason in this passage why Jesus starts with truth and moves to unity. Did you notice that? Right? God, glorify me. Jesus is first. God, sanctify us and protect us in truth. God, unify us. I think Martin Luther was right. Peace, if possible, truth at all costs. Okay? So I'm not saying we compromise truth. But at the same time, we can't be people who pick between truth and unity. Does that make sense? We can't be people who go, I'm in camp unity or I'm in camp truth. We have to be people at all times who are in, I'm camp unity and I'm in camp truth. That doesn't always work out, right? Sometimes there has to be a break with them. And we see that going on in our culture and churches all around us. Sometimes one group will just say something or do things that you say, I can't be a part of that anymore. I can't in good conscience be a part of this. And you're not going to change, so I can't be here anymore. That is something that has to happen. But it shouldn't be our, like, trigger finger, right? Like, we shouldn't be ready just going, oh, I can't wait till you do something wrong so I can get out of here. So I can make a righteous stand, and I can tell everybody, and I can, you know, blow this popsicle stand, right? You can't do that. That can't be our attitude. Jesus asks for something different for us. He prays for us and says, God, I want you to sanctify them in truth. I want them to be right and in line with your word. But God, I also want them to be unified. 
I want them to be unified. I don't know what that looks like all the time. There's probably no way we can. Okay. There's sometimes unity takes precedent. There are sometimes the truth takes precedent. We shoot for both at all times. Okay. So I'm not giving you a recommendation about anything, but I am saying that we need to be people who are on both of those teams because Jesus prays that we would be on both of those teams, that we would be sanctified in truth and that we would be united as one people under the father and the son. So what I want to do is we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll close rather abruptly. Um, but I want us to go to, in prayer and ask for those very things from God. I want to ask God, the Father, to do the exact things that God the Son has asked. I want Jesus Christ to be glorified in our community, right? I don't want us to be people who go out and say, Uh, You should stop doing bad things, and then we'll have a good society. Um, You should start cleaning up your life, because then everything will be better. Hey, I want to go do some good things for people and some nice, helpful, merciful things for people, because, because then we'll have like a nice, happy, merciful place to live. Those are not the priority on any of them. I want Jesus Christ to be glorified. Okay? Now, we do glorify Christ by doing all those nice things, but we can't do them apart from Christ. So I want Christ to be glorified. Number one, Jesus says, glorify me, Father. And I say, yes, Father, glorify him. Two, I want us to be protected and sanctified in the truth. I want us to know his word and be set apart for it so much and and so happily, so joyfully that we don't even have to worry. That when the onslaughts of the world come and the onslaughts of the devil come, we just say, it's fine. That's okay, because I know what I've been set apart for. I've been set apart for Jesus Christ. I've been set apart for his truth. Let the world throw whatever it wants at me. And lastly, uh, I want us to be unified, right? I want us to be one people, not just as a church, but as a unified front. I'll tell you what, here's something super encouraging that I have started going to. I've not been a part of it more recently, but um, I mean, until recently, um, but there's a group back at Easter when they had that Good Good Friday event, right? It was down at, supposed to be the uh, uh, pavilion. There is another event coming July 2nd, I think it is. It's going to be at the pavilion uh, amphitheater again. It's a 4th of July worship celebration, Okay. And it's being put on this group by Awake 21. And man, here's the cool thing. Awake 21 is a group of churches who in many ways are very different. There are Baptist churches. There are Methodist churches. There are Pentecostal churches. Um, there are a couple of other denominations represented. That's the, 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 the most of them. Um, but they are getting together under the banner of Jesus Christ and saying, we agree on a whole lot more than we disagree on. You know what? Yeah, we disagree on some things like baptism and 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 uh, gifts of the spirit and some things like that, right? But man, we agree on a whole bunch of stuff. And we can present a unified front to this community showing that Baptists and Methodists and Pentecostals can get along and uplift the name of Jesus Christ and be unified in truth, okay? Does that mean we're going to be unified in every single thing? Probably not. 
It's going to be hard for some of us to do those things or whatever. But in general, we can walk shoulder to shoulder with these brothers and sisters and say, we're on the same team and we're glorifying the same Christ. Okay. And so that's what I pray for, for our church. That's what I pray for our community as we bear witness to Jesus Christ. So let's go to God, ask him to do the same things that Jesus has, has asked him to do, trusting that God is faithful and he will answer those prayers. Father God, what more could we ask than what Jesus has asked? What would be wiser or more true uh, or more in keeping with your word and your heart than to ask the very things that your son has asked of you? Father, we ask for those same things. We ask that you would glorify your son, Jesus Christ, that the world would know him as savior and as son of God. God, that you would exalt his name uh, and take his fame to the ends of the earth. Father, we ask that you would sanctify us and protect us, that you would keep us in your name. God, that you would give us your joy, that you would give us uh, your protection. God, that you would set us apart for truth. And God, we ask that you would unify us as a church universal. God, that we ask that you would unify us as a church local that the members of our church would be in unity and peace with one another. God, but we also ask that you would make us unified with our brothers and sisters at other Baptist churches. God, at other uh, like-believing churches. God, at other evangelical churches, at other Protestant churches. God, as other churches that uh, believe the truths of the creed, that we confess. God, that we would work together where we can, that we would be unified in the truth and uplifting Jesus Christ. God, help us to do that. Help us to be faithful in the difficult situations and the sticky situations of conscience. God, help us to be faithful there too. But go with us and protect us. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing and close the song. The mighty fortress is our God. Oh, who would never pay? Oh, he See to 
That's one of my favorites. We don't do that one enough, but it's a great one um, and a great song for this message. Um, sorry, it was a little bit long. Just so you know, man, chapter 17, I could have gone for two or three more hours. Uh, there was a whole lot of stuff in 17, and I pruned it back a lot. So, um, but hope you have a great week. Uh, we will see you um, next week. Next week is Father's Day. Just so you know, like Father's Day is not national skip church day and go to the lake. Um, Father's Day is you should you would want to be nowhere else than in the Father's house on Father's Day, right? So hope to see you next week. Um, and um, have a great week. Be careful. Uh, here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn His face towards you. Give you peace. See you next week. Thank you.